0: and a very warm welcome to our very first episode of our new series of leaders for humanity and as part of a larger program which we will explain very shortly to you which is called good organizations we are trying to introduce to you but also have dialogues with a number of what we find very important and very wise people who can help us in trying to better understand what is going on in the world today and how potentially all of us in our organizations in particular could contribute in making a small difference to um, helping to make the world a little better. So with that, I would also like to introduce my um, co-host Antoinette and Alicia um, Henick, who's going to be our very first interviewee today. Alicia, welcome, and thank you so much for making time. I don't know how to say that in China. You will need to help me here in Chinese. Um, But very, very nice to see you. Okay. I think you're on mute, Alicia. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was, like, I was wondering whether I say, should say something already now. But yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm excited about, um, yeah, this, this kind of interview.
0: Wonderful. And I mean, if we have, which could very well be the case, any listeners from an Eastern um, background, how, how would we say a very warm welcome to our listeners in Chinese? How would, how would that sound?
1: I think I would keep it simple and just say "Dadja how." So it's like, well, welcome to the the great family. Like, well, yeah, kind of something like that. But the the normal greeting is always "Dadja how," and that means like uh, "big family, hello." Like literally translated.
0: Wonderful, "Dadja how" to everybody who's coming in from that side of the world. And let me introduce you very briefly to the agenda for the interview today, um, or the dialogue rather. We will do a very first opening to get you into the position to understand the frame and the container for this conversation. Thereafter, we will, of course, introduce Alicia a little bit further beyond the first kind of Chinese lesson. And I'm sure you'll hear a lot more about Chinese and Eastern philosophy on this um, webcast. And then we will go into really the gist of the conversation. And today's topic is virtue ethics in business. So we will particularly look at neo-Aristotelian thought and morality, but with a clear focus on organizations and organizational leaders. So the slightly provocative title for the session today is, do we need philosopher CEOs? A little bit like Plato in the old days suggested we need philosopher kings, so translated into a modern 21st century context, does that mean we need philosopher CEOs? And um, we will explore this, and hopefully you will come to a conclusion about this question by the end of the, um, the hour. And finally, we will just uh, close down and wrap up with some of the key conclusions that amongst the three of us we found, and hopefully you will equally be in a better position to judge by yourself. A bigger project, driving change in this complex world that we are all facing today feels very daunting. It's a big world and we are very small and also um, very complex, very very difficult. And therefore this project that we have created which we've named good organizations is really a, a desire and an attempt to create a community of people who are willing to spend their personal effort and time in holding some of the core questions that are important for today's world, and also to go from the questions and the theory and the the research towards action. So in, in our belief, organizations can become a very important force for good, even in today's capitalistic society, so to speak, either by acting well in the ecology and ecosystem they find themselves in, or by creating a container for a flourishing collective within those organizations, or finally by creating a, a good breeding ground, a good fertile territory for the individuals that find themselves in the organizational system to attain whatever the good life means for them. And then in that attempt, we've launched a website. So please have a look at um, goodorganizations.com. But we've also created a number of different and targeted communities that we are, going, we are trying to involve in this conversation. We are looking for free thinkers. Who can go beyond the current bubble, as Antoinette is always saying, in helping us with exploring some of the challenges and questions. We are involving researchers, because very often there are lots of opinions, but very few kind of evidence-based theories. And we are trying to create a narrative that then we can propose to what we call this Salons um, of Humanity, where we are trying to unite academics, consultants, coaches and organizational leaders together in trying to actually take some of the steps forward that come out of this dialogue. So hopefully you will hear a lot more about this in the coming months. And with that, let me hand over to the much more important part of this uh, call today. And I will go and hand over to Antoinette to introduce our first interviewee, Alicia Henning. Antoinette, over to you.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Well, Alicia, I'm really glad that we have a philosopher queen here rather than a philosopher CEO. Um, And we have you here because we find um, that you are such an outspoken, yet nuanced philosopher, currently holding an interim professorship in business ethics at the TU um, University in Dresden, but um, also very interestingly in many other universities, you're also teaching and you're also trying to teach business leaders in eastern philosophy and what that could mean to them in stepping into other shoes which we find really really interesting and by the way we just written here walk the talk because what i personally find really great about you is you you really spent so many years in that context you really know what you're talking about and i don't think there's so many people out there which can kind of master that so welcome here really great to have you here and i would suggest that we start right away with personal questions and the first thing i would like you um, to talk a little bit because i know we always forget um, things when we introduce people is how would you yourself describe yourself in a few attributes
1: how would i describe myself yeah that's always the most awkward question i think (laughs) especially when not being prepared so i think i would well if there are any attributes i would assign to myself i think it's trying to be as open-minded as possible looking at things from different perspectives and not just excluding right away certain perspectives Um, but yeah that that always requires constant constant training because um, most of the times you know we want to stay in the comfort zone we say like yeah but you know that's not possible so um, and then lastly yeah I I try to be optimistic but I know I'm also realist so I think that's like always you know it's yeah it's it's both it's both things, but uh, depending on the mood or the situation or the context, I'm perhaps more realistic than optimistic. But um, in any case, um, and, and you know, coming a bit more to like the, the virtue stuff, I still believe in that human beings are good beings. And um, you know, by giving them the opportunity to develop themselves further, I think, um, yeah, we can make the most of it. And um, this outlook, I think this positive outlook on the human being as such is such as very important. So, yeah, that would be my description, like about myself, or what I'm striving for or, yeah.
0: Very nice. A a pragmatic idealist almost. And let me maybe go on a little bit about what that, that means for you. So we've heard a lot about this YOLO wave, this you only lead once after the pandemic, where people strongly feel that they need to make more out of their lives. So, The good life is something that seems to resonate these days. And I'm just interested with you having so much experience also across cultures and being a philosopher. What is the good life for you? And what does good work mean for you personally? And maybe through your career, what was most positive and most challenging in in getting to that meaning in in life and work?
1: I think... um... Well, the most positive lesson in retrospective, but also the hardest lesson was becoming a hybrid, like someone who can survive in both worlds, understanding the other like kind of thinking paradigm, adjusting to it to some degree. But of course, there are limits to adjustments because you still have your own identity and you want to carry on with your own identity. But I think that's like that was the most valuable lesson over the past years. But um, speaking of what makes a life a good life, I think it's, well, I see it in my job mainly. I think um, you know, when I have my students, the most important thing is to let them flourish, you know, let them discuss um, reducing hierarchical barriers. So this is why they say do to me, you know, they don't use the, the doctor title or anything. They just call me Alicia. Right. And in, in in like when we have seminars, I find this important because I see myself as a facilitator, as a mentor and not as a teacher to lecture people what they should do or what they should not do. Right. It, it needs to come intrinsically um you know from their own kind of intellectual engagement and um i think the good life is about not imposing too much on others but let like understanding their potential and promoting their potential without imposition of your own kind of agenda i think that's that's something that makes a good life
2: Well, it's just kind of, uh, it's interesting that you said you had to become a hybrid because that of course later will resonate what you're telling us about some of the Eastern philosophies, but it also resonates with some sociological work from Barbara Janioska, for instance, and she was kind of going about, well, because I'm a hybrid everywhere, a a foreign woman in in another country, a woman with lots of men, it also gives me much more freedom, and I have to fill this freedom as well with um, trying to live a good life. Is this something that resonates with you, that, some of the experiences you also had?
1: You mean in the sense of like having the responsibility to live up to a good life in that sense or?
2: So it's just because kind of you are expected to be strange anyhow. So you can kind of have the freedom of a fool. And I think it makes it almost a little bit more maybe challenging then to kind of find your own.
1: Oh I think that's not exactly the case with China. There is the expectation that at one point you adapt. And if you don't adapt, you're you're a barbarian. You're like a, a, not a civilized person, you know, so it, it really I mean, and the question is still today, if you play the foreigner card, right? And say, like, you know, you think I'm stupid? Yes, I'm stupid, but I can still do what I want. Or you, you try to be as, you know, a cultured as possible. But then you may not win the game either because, you know, you're just I don't know you're following their rules but at the same time you will not win the game because you're still not Chinese right so that's that's a that's a fundamental question I've been also discussing with a colleague who has spent like equal amounts of time in China and in the beginning I tried to you know and and that would be still my approach we we got to learn from this new environment you know uh, already because we we ourselves perhaps are striving for getting the most of our experience right if i stay just within my foreigner bubble i will not get the same experience if if i leave my comfort zone and really do a deep dive you know into the culture and so this is what i've been doing because otherwise i wouldn't have been working for chinese universities as one or two of all foreigners you know so i could have equally joined a joint university where there are more foreigners you know and there is more of a, of a of a comfort zone so i was not seeking this i was deliberately seeking the lion cage and but of course that led to like quite tough experience but yeah, so lesson learned, you know, but um, yeah, so I think it, it always depends on in what kind of cultural environment you are. But as a woman in China, I wouldn't say you, you you are really free. I mean, yes, as a foreigner, you still enjoy a little bit more of freedom, but at the same time, pressures to adapt are there. And you can see that, I mean, now with the rising nationalism, like the, the times that, that China is foreigner friendly are over. So either you adapt or you better leave the country. Um, yeah. But th- that's specifically on China like it could be different for other countries and then perhaps you have a different degree of freedom.
0: Let me dive in ex- here. Also- Let yeah. me dive in here because otherwise we won't get into the main discussion but I think what I'm what I'm hearing is I think that, that these are some some terms that will continue to provoke us during the rest of the interview the relationship between individual and collective culture but also I think the notion of freedom So is freedom individual, freedom of choice, as always kind of uh, put on a pedestal in a a westernized world, or is freedom maybe also something else? I think that would be interesting. Closing out the kind of section about you, Alicia, can I ask you one more question, just with a kind of quick thought from you on, based on what you've seen, and you just mentioned that you have also suffered, I think, through that uh, cultural divide. Is there one piece of advice that you're happy to share with people in terms of attaining their good life what's the one thing that you would invite them to do
1: i think um, whenever you're exposed to cultural differences take your time and reflect on whether you really want to go for adaptation or it's too much for you and you cannot handle it and you leave this environment without um, kind of um, accusing yourself of failing. I think that's very important because oftentimes when we cannot cope with the foreign environment and we withdraw, we think we just fail, but I I think the story is not so easy. So it's not directly related to the question of a good life, but I think in order to have a a good life for yourself, I think you should not um, blame yourself too much if, if you cannot survive in a different culture.
0: Very nice and i had two things one don't blame yourself necessarily there's also this, this notion of failure being an, a resource for learning but i think the second thing i'm hearing is reflection take a step pause take a breath and reflect on what's actually going on and what the cultural conditioning also means very nice and thank you for that for sharing a little bit about yourself and with that i will go back to the slide just for one more slide which brings us to the main section and in order to frame and create a container for the conversation that will follow now, I just want to introduce to our listeners briefly the structure of the inquiry that the Good Organization Project entails. And mainly our endeavor is to connect the individual or the leadership development with the organizational development with the societal de- development. And we are, we are asking a question of what is a good organization in the context of all these three levels, as I mentioned earlier. And here's some of the key questions in each of the sections. And we will start with the, what is good actually? What does it, what is a good business? What is a good society? What does it mean from a moral philosopher standpoint across East and West? That's where we will start and probably we'll have a few interesting questions there. We will also try to bring in um, then the concept of positive psychology in this context and see what it resonates with Alicia. The second block will be about, that's all good. We understand what good is or better understand what good could be. How do we operationalize that in today's typical organization, especially big corporates? And finally, what does it mean for leadership? And Alicia has written a PhD on the subject, so we are very curious to, at the end, get a few thoughts on on this as well. So this is the structure for um, the next, I would say, probably half hour um, or a little bit more. So fasten your seat belts and uh, get into the dialogue. And I will, again, hand over to Antoinette to kick us off with the good business section And um, please, um, the floor is yours for the first question.
2: Wonderful. So yes, we are in something which a lot of people find already difficult. It's about morality in business. And I would just want to ask you, what makes an ethical business?
1: Yeah, that's that's not an easy question, of course, what makes an ethical business. But in a nutshell, I think what makes a business an ethical business is people, who have learned to think for themselves and act for themselves, um, who can come up with a proper judgment of the situation and to have a, an inner compass of what is right and what is wrong, right? To have like some kind of internal guidance, um, speaking of Aristotle, speaking of Adam Smith, impartial spectator, for example, having having a solid conscience, you know, I think that is, that's that's what makes a good business eventually, when all these people are working, you know, on the same level of consciousness and, and um, understanding of what makes an, an, an action a, a good action. Yeah. So just, uh, in a, on a, in a very general basis.
0: Coming in right there with, I think, so professors of business ethics. So Antoinette and I are, of course, not experts in business ethics, which is why we have got lots of philosophers on our list of interviews. But we have done our homework a little bit. And I don't know, Antoinette, how many essays have we read about business ethics? Probably almost 100 or so, I reckon. Right. So, And one thing that strikes me is that I found a, a large majority of um business ethics textbooks positioning business ethics as a means to an end so i've even seen flowcharts where business ethics together with other resources determines good profits but right? in good profits i mean maximum profits right so it, it, there seems to be a notion that business ethics helps you to mitigate business risks and exposure in any regard right? especially in terms of reputational damage um, or become something that you have to become an expert in in terms of minimum standards and compliance to just make sure that you do what you have to do, but not more. So, let me ask you a very provocational question. So, it's kind of business ethics. Does that even exist? Is that an oxymoron? Because it doesn't seem to very, very closely r- relate to what you just said to Antoinette.
1: Oh, I, I think it exists. I mean, it, it also should exist because actually we should not separate business from society business is a vital part of society and this is why the same ethical rules we have in society should ideally also exist in business because it's not that we change to completely different people only once we enter the organization right so and I think there is a legitimate reason for the business ethics discipline to exist. Um, and to to ask these questions. But of course, within the business ethics discipline, which is not homogeneous, we have people taking a more strategic um, approach, right? Um, so where it's like where it's about reconciling profits with like ethics and that kind of stuff. But we also have people who are more like um, Argumenting from an intrinsical perspective, like what has it to do with a human being as such and, and being a good human being in an organization and in a society. So um, I think it, it kind of boils down to what kind of ideology you're taking up within the business ethics discipline, right? It's not, I mean, and we can see like the business ethics discipline is constituted of like philosophers, but not so many actually, and mostly people from economics. So I guess you can do the math and think about what's the more common approach in business ethics. And that's perhaps the more strategic approach and less like, you know, talking about virtue ethics, talk, talking about the virtues or the good individual. Um, this is a different kind of framework to think within. Yeah. And, and in business ethics, we have all these different ideologies and people are representatives of different ideologies.
2: That almost brings me to the next question. Um, Is it then that the economists in business ethics have failed? Because if I look at um, whether businesses are indeed getting more of that reputational um, um, points, for instance, I rather see the the opposite. As a trust researcher, I see that everything um, goes rather into the opposite direction. Um, What's your view? Um, Has business ethics failed, or are companies becoming better and we don't
0: see it? Maybe if I add to that, Antoinette, I think we've seen on 60 years of corporate social responsibility, and I think the latest statistics, Alicia, that we saw were 91% of people in one of the surveys suggested that capitalism is not providing actual benefits to employees and other stakeholders beyond shareholders. And more than 50% of people don't trust managers, to be honest. Right, so by, by the argument of if business ethics was there to make businesses better, to Antoinette's point, it seems we haven't made that much of an, of, of progress.
1: Yeah, I would say like the business ethics discipline is merely an academic discipline, but perhaps that's. It's not too much trickling down to actual companies, right? Um, I think that the, the link between theory and practice definitely needs to be improved because what some academics think should be done in organizations is a totally different story compared to what has been done in organizations then, right? And um, but the problem is, I think most of us are lacking practical experience, working experience in organizations, and that's why it always stays on a somewhat disconnected level. I mean, I've been working for an organization during my Ph.D. So I know about power barriers, for example, when you want to actually push stuff forward, you know. Um, But yeah, I think in light of lack of this experience, there is not too much connection between academic, expertise and um, actual implementation
0: um, that can needs I, to be improved I one follow-up on this alicia i think you mm-hmm. defined Antoinette, correct me if i'm wrong but i think you said goodness is when people inside the organization take good job ju- may have good judgments i think we are saying that also the organization as a whole as an actor in society needs to act well and here of course i think kind of are we judging organizations based on outcomes so the statistics that we just mentioned probably refer to outcomes and global warming still not being curtailed, et cetera, or on intentions. And is it the individuals inside the organization or is it the organization as a collective? What, the definition of a good organization, how, how, how would you sharpen it on that basis?
1: I think an either or differentiation doesn't make much sense. You have the organization as collective framework and you have the individuals in the organization and you can't just, I mean, you always need to take into account the two factors because people make the organization, right? And eventually you speak of the organization as one person, right? So it's, it's always both in my opinion. Um, And um, yeah, in terms of well, you know, how can you judge from intentions? You cannot see them; they are not visible. So you can only judge by outcomes. And when we judge by outcomes, I mean, it's what you said. It it does look it doesn't look extremely promising for now. Well, it looks as if there's still a hell of a lot of work to do in that sense, right? And so coming back to the CSR question, and you know, having like looking back at almost yeah 60, 70 years of CSR, I think that the concept was doomed to fail in the first place because it was never integrated. It was always seen as an add-on, and this is how you do not bring ethics into organizations when you try to sell them something as an add-on, it's not going to work.
0: Yeah. Whereas by the same token, of course, you just spoke about power and the individuals very often being powerless to impact the context within the, they find themselves. So I'm, Antoinette, I'm thinking that there's also the notion of the organization as a container, as we said, which strongly impacts the, uh, what do we call it in complexity science? The afford, affordances of the members of that system to act beyond the boundaries of that system. But I think that's something we'll probably get to also now when we speak more about virtue ethics. But Antoinette, over to you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but I now want to dig a little bit deeper and then we really go to to virtue (laughs) ethics. But I was just kind of remembering what you wrote about Taoism. And um, if I understood that correctly, which of course could be not the case, I understood that it's all about taking obstacles away rather than being more too provocative and active so what obstacles are there inside companies which uh, maybe do not let good people flourish more um if we take that from the outside that the outcomes are the same as the intentions
1: yeah i mean so you're right in your perception that um is more like going with some flow right with the idea that there is a natural order you know you are within you cannot completely change and you better adapt to this order than actively pushing for something. So and when we look at organizations and we see them as an order framework in an in order framework kind of thing not a natural though right because it was established um nevertheless we can identify certain barriers um, to flourishing and i think um a lot of these barriers are constituted by hierarchy um, by a certain rigid structures which do not empower and enable people to actually take responsibility for what they are doing, to be accountable and to use or unleash their own level of creativity. So I think this is hindered by a lot of hierarchical structures, status, right, in, in insistence on status on uh, job titles and stuff like that um and i think this is not helpful eventually like perhaps uh, an organization should be more viewed like a community where people really cooperate and not fight against each other for the next stupid job title you know and for the next promotion which comes with this job title and which comes with a higher salary and all this stuff you know I, i i don't think that's helpful for humans working together in a productive way so this would be the first barrier and, and that's also something I wrote about um, in the context of like Daoist philosophy and organizations it's like this I mean also like the, the Chinese company like Hire right they implemented this it's called leaderless management or in a more Daoist way it's like you, you need to learn to be leader and follower at the same time you need to have a fluid understanding of roles at least if you cannot completely Um, like kind of eliminate hierarchy. You need to have a more fluid understanding of roles and do justice to that. Yeah, so I think this is important.
0: Which I think, and sorry, we're gonna be a little bit interruptive, I think just to get the conversation going. But I think this is very interesting from two perspectives. One, as Carol Sanford always reminds me, I think to be able to take that stand, you require agency. So you actually need to be able to observe yourself in a role in the system to then also more fluidly probably play these different roles. Because I think what we see in psychology is that not only the system imposes these job titles, people very often also project into the titles and the roles. And we we see from statistics and research that over 70% of adults today identify with their role. So there's probably also on the side of the individual a rigidity in almost existentially being connected to the role that they believe they inhabit. And I wonder, um, one thing that I really liked was the suggestion that we should judge organizations like we judge political systems, which is very much by what type of people they produce and produce in a very wide sense. So are we creating, so to speak, through the organizations like many societies, more agentic, more self-determined individuals who can play the role that you described and have more informed judgment, as you said at the beginning? And if organizations today, and I don't know if it's hierarchy, we will query that off Emanuele tomorrow, if it's hierarchy or bureaucracy or any of these constructs, but
2: competition, (laughs) or
0: competition, right? Market-based competition, right? What is it that drives potentially a lack of such personal development or collective development? Right. So I think that could also link the psychological aspects to the philosophical aspects. What's your, what has come up for you?
1: Well, in, in terms of what now precisely.
0: So would you judge, I think what I'm, what I'm, what I want to explore a little bit more is how to define goodness, maybe also in terms of measures. So I think what I'm suggesting is that in order to get to a good business, we need to create the environment where people develop themselves to become, as you suggest, both fluid in the ways they, they take up lead and follow roles and self-manage in a leaderless context, like you just said. Secondly, to attain that um, practical wisdom in in being able to make good judgments in the contextual situations that they find themselves. And then collectively, to do good as an organization. So is that a measure of goodness to say, OK, it creates better people, so to speak, or more mature people. And secondly, the outcomes that collectively these good people produce are good in the context of society.
2: I
1: think, yeah, I mean, what is goodness, right? How to measure goodness. I think this is very, very difficult because first of all, you need to set up criteria for what makes something good and what not. I think on an individual level, it would be, I don't know, I, I see it as counterproductive to rank people according to what kind of goodness days level of goodness they have reached i find this is i don't find it productive but on an organizational level we could just definitely look out for outcomes and i mean what what people have been trying you know with the impact investing for example was to start measuring impact i mean you know in terms of positive impact and even these guys are struggling with the question how to measure impact so how do you ever want to measure goodness or like equally like positive outcomes right I don't know i mean i think in the future we will not get around this question how to measure it um and then yeah on an organizational level i i think if we can get our heads around it it will be possible right um but i I wouldn't know how to approach this for now right and then also like when we want to measure goodness of a company i think we need to get to a more integrated understanding of how a company is conducting business right because we could, of course, already measure goodness now by f- evaluating their CSR projects, right, by looking hey, well, what have they done with this community, how much voluntary work did they have spent, how many hours. I mean, companies are already collecting this information. Right. But what does it tell us about the actual value of this action? Right. It doesn't tell us a lot. So um, And then, you know, the thing with measuring is like you only measure for which you have set up criteria and what where you don't have criteria, this will just, you know, go through and and you will have never have something on paper with regard to this. And on the other hand, there's there are things you just cannot measure. I mean, it's it's an illusion that you can just by quantitative terms um, determine everything. Um, Yeah. But nevertheless we should start with this but we should first of all we need to develop a more integrated understanding of how business can i don't know even serve communities. is the wrong term they need to be integrated in communities in the society again and then we can think about like oh yeah and how do we want to measure this like outcomes of certain projects now interesting
2: yeah very interesting and and i would want to even dive deeper, but I think um, we we should first go to what I believe is your main expertise, it's more on the individual level, Um, and dig a little bit deeper in what you know about virtues and the good lives in different ethnic traditions, because I think here we can really learn a lot. So what are virtues and how do they differ between different traditions you were looking at?
0: Or maybe if if we go one step earlier than that, even say, I don't know if everybody on this call is familiar with virtue ethics and we will share materials up front so people come prepared but maybe bef- even before you go to this virtues do you just want to frame virtue ethics vis-a-vis any other traditions with one sentence alicia
1: well yeah virtue ethics is the, t- the tradition or the ideology within the business ethics discipline uh, that believes in well first of all it's focused on the human being and then the human being can become virtuous by habitualizing certain, um, I don't know, behavior, right, and excelling in that behavior. And by that, making a contribution to society. I think that's kind of in a, I mean, that there could be different explanations, but that would be my explanation for how I see virtue ethics It's something you, you can learn and you need to learn in order to contribute to society.
0: So what we, and, and to Antoinette's point, so what's a virtue? seems a bit like an antiquated and somewhat anachronistic term. Is it just any behavior or how, how would you define what is a virtue and what is not?
1: Yeah, right. So I could read the question already before and I really had to make my mind up to like, what, what can we do? And I think like in order to decide what, what is a virtue and what is not a virtue, I found like kind of two guiding questions. So first of all, um, can you learn this? Yeah, Is it something you can learn and you can um, improve and you can um, perfectionate eventually? And then secondly, does it contribute to society? I think these are the key questions to determine whether it is a virtuous kind of action or uh, whether you are a virtuous person or not. But the, one of the cornerstones of virtue ethics is that it it goes back to habit and thus it needs to be something that can be learned by people and it can be improved. Now, unlike for example when, when you take like deontology or, or you know like Hunt's approach rule compliance yeah it's something you can learn and you can perfectionate it, but um, it's it's not on the same intrinsic level because that is imposed um externally and virtues come from within right you yourself want to excel at that because you yourself want to grow so there's also this idea of perhaps personal growth in the virtue ethics idea
0: and i hear a lot about contributing to society so sorry i cut into you Antoinette. do you want to go first contributing to society so one thing Antoinette, and i have wondered is and we will come to the eastern side of the question i think in a second um does it imply suffering so is there is there, a, is there an idea that i need to give up on something through those virtuous habits in contribution to the greater good or to the society around me is that is that a constituting aspect <sighs>
1: I would say hopefully not because that would make it a bit negative like I mean seriously what's that that, that's a very um, depressing logic to look at things like I mean saying like well you know um, you can only contribute to uh, the common good if you yourself you know withdraw from stuff, take a back seat, make compromises, you know, and then you think like, why the heck should I do this, right? I mean, there's all the interests. Let's let's go,
0: (laughs) I I agree with you, but let's go to walls, so to speak, and the wheel of ignorance. So let's go to um, the the idea of a social contract, right, where individuals have negative freedoms and they really only contract with each other based on their own individualistic, individualistic, hedonistic kind of or utilitarian beliefs. That type of world view wouldn't imply, for example, that I go out of my way to do something for my neighbor it's also kind of maybe suffering is too is too harsh, but it could be sacrifice, a sacrifice of time that I have for myself and I'd rather call my my mother um, kind of thinking about the the Chinese uh, rating system of of how good uh, people are in ca- taking care of their elders and so on so so Is there a degree of giving up something that, in a negative freedom worldview, would not necessarily be expected of you?
1: Well, that depends on your frame of mind, I think. Because you can frame it in a negative way and then it's like, oh, you got to compromise. Or you can frame it in a positive way in the sense of, oh, for you it's actually a great learning opportunity. So I think there is no clear answer to the question. It depends on the framing. Um, and i would I personally would always frame it like it's it's a great opportunity and a, like and and the other larger frame which plays into this is like either you see yourself as a as an intrinsic part of the community or you just don't and you cannot force this right If this identification is not there, of course you will view everything as a constraint and as a compromise, so I think it it 's very much related to your inner attitude to your social environment, and this is how you 're going to frame it for yourself. So the frame matters, I think, and the frame is also then a motivator or not.
2: So, so that I hear two different aspects here. The last one was there might be individual differences, which is something I haven't yet teased out so clearly. What does this mean for trying to get this virtuous habituated practices? Does it mean that some people just have to practice much longer? Um, and the second thing I think is a big, big difference is uh, uh, which virtue ethic approach you're taking. I mean, I have the feeling that we hear a little bit of Catholic, Aristotelian virtue ethic in one sense here, and might be very different in the traditions you are looking at. So maybe you can try to develop first, maybe the different traditions, which helps us to go um, even deeper towards that question. And then maybe, um, it would be really interesting, and something we didn't find very clearly. Um, what about individual differences? Again, that might differ across these traditions.
1: Okay, so I mean, I think like your other question, like in, in terms of differentiating between the virtue ethics traditions, um, was aiming at like, okay, are there any differences in virtues and and, and practice of virtues, right? So, um, yeah. I think each culture defines what is virtuous behavior, right? So it's definitely culture dependent um, because that is what the, the culture sees as an ideal to strive for. And so, of course, in, in Aristotle times and also in times nowadays, we have different ideas of what makes a person a virtuous person. And for example, those Aristotelian virtues from back then, like, you know, 500 BC, may not um, exactly applicable today or may not be that relevant, right? I mean, Aristotle wrote a lot about like money spending and how uh, what are the pr- appropriate ways of how to deal with money and, and stuff like that, you know, or like, um, he also had like values where i think like okay can women identify with this like more like manly kind of you know virtues because it was a different society right so in any case like when we look back and the virtue ethics traditions no matter at which culture we're looking at it goes back to around 500 bc we need to kind of perhaps adjust or adapt whatever we've read about those virtues so and um yeah as i said like Aristotle for me is a bit dated in terms of his conception and the other thing about Aristotle's conception is that I find it, I mean the idea was for Aristotle a virtue is always in between two extremes, so the mean is the virtue. Yeah. And, and the challenging question is, how do you hit the mean? How do you make sure it is the mean? And so, you know, intellectually, this might be a bit challenging yeah, for just anyone to practice. But when we look at, for example, the Asian traditions like uh, Confucianism, for example, or Taoism, they don't define it that clearly that, oh, yeah, it's always between two extremes where to find the virtue. Right. Um, Confucius defined it in terms of well and now we come back also to a kind of outdated concept um virtue is defined in accordance with hierarchical level role and responsibility and in that sense virtuous behavior is appropriate behavior um with regard to your role and status in society so it's very simple right everyone can understand it but at the same time it's a bit rigid and also like for our societies striving more for egalitarian kind of structures, is not really applicable and in Taoism, it's again different because what is virtuous is completely disconnected from society because it was the counter, the counter idea to Confucianism. And so what is virtuous is what is in accordance with nature, right, which is in accordance with the natural order and does not interfere with the natural order. And there we end up in a totally different range of virtues. Yeah. Like, for example, um, well, in Confucianism and Taoism, we have both humbleness yeah, or humility but they are differently motivated in Taoism, you 're humble because you accept the order as the higher order and you know you make the most of it when you know you don 't go against it in Confucianism you 've got to be humble because it may be dictated by your role or status right it's a, there's a significant difference. Yeah so um i hope that answers your questions with regard to the different virtue ethics traditions and how virtue is defined yeah? so different frames I want, like I want
0: to dive into into two things that came up um, before we go into the this the this second part of the question on the um, so i think this this dao notion is is very interesting for me and i think and i pronounced this incorrectly but this wu wei kind of action for inaction i think links to that concept right which i think is is very fashionable. And I'm encountering more and more people who tell me that kind of what is, is good or life is perfect as it is. And, I, and then kind of even in Buddhism, I think this notion of avoiding suffering, which also relates to Stoicism. So they kind of, is there a danger of inaction in some of these philosophies? And then I want to contrapose that with uh, something Luigi Bruni suggested, where it almost sounded like, for a virtue like courage, for example, is at its very... Uh, purist when it actually starts to challenge the social order so there seems to be a notion that stepping up when it costs you when to Antoinette's kind of trust when you become vulnerable to do what is right and to display moral courage seems to be the highest virtue almost which puts other virtues into danger like prudence but you, you probably shouldn't do that if you were thinking about yourself so so what is this balance and I think Antoinette you talked about uh, obeyance versus virtue so is, is there something here in these different traditions that we can look at
1: well with the Taoism, of course there are certain limitations to this philosophy and one is that it may lead to a stoic kind of attitude right because i mean it's not about taking courage it's about understanding um under, yeah deeply understanding your environment and understand what you can do within these environmental constraints right so this is um yeah this is these are like two different frameworks right it's like Taoism is very much focused on working within constraints whereas typical western approach is like go like kind of overcoming constraints It's a different logic uh, different approach and um so i think the the key challenge lies in and, and i could see that with myself Um, having adapted to a a Taoist worldview after a while of you know kind of consuming all these books is being back in my world again you know in in Germany I have to understand in which situations I rather try to work within the constraints and where is the time or the context to go and to overcome those constraints and so I think um, the Yeah, the the key advantage lies in when you have become a hybrid, you only then you still need to learn to differentiate between the situations, but you can um, act in accordance to almost any situation, right? Because you've got the two frameworks. Um, So
0: this, this leads back to your point about identity, I think, because only if you're able to let go of your own identity and step into different roles and different perspectives, do you have the freedom to act with kind of, a higher rationale than automated driver, so to speak, in that context, right? Which I think, Antoinette, I've forgotten the name of the person who suggested that, but it almost links to this notion of identity is not something that we find if we dig long enough and deeply enough into ourselves, but it's we are a mess of acquired practices almost yeah, that yeah. we accept as being ourselves and therefore challenging some of these practices that are related to roles and being able to do that in a in a in a conscious fashion, I think, almost entails that freedom. But that, I can't remember what the name of the person was, but uh, what has come up for you?
2: I think Alicia even recommended that to us, the TED Talk. So (laughs) um, a very interesting um, anthropologist, I think, so um, studying um, uh, and philosopher, but he's also anthropologist. But um, uh, just a little bit building on that, uh, what I'm hearing here is also a little bit, um, you can have the, but, that's now really layman. You can have Taoism more like in this whole uh, consciousness movement. So it's a lot about getting conscious, stepping um, ahead of you on the balcony and being able to see things. Whereas when it's then about how to act in a situation where maybe courage would be needed, you would then turn to a slightly more active um, virtue ethics version. So um, are you um, saying we, are, um, sh- we should do a pragmatic virtue ethics where we kind of try to merge the things together?
1: Yeah, I would definitely suggest a pragmatic approach. I think we should not reduce ourselves just to one method. It doesn't make sense. Life is too complex, right? And so for some situations, a more Taoist outlook may be helpful, but then in other situations, you need to realize, oh yeah, it's urgent that I actually act upon that. And that's, for me, that's the art of life. To combine different methods and understanding in what situation which method is actually appropriate right i would never reduce like after that experience in china i would never reduce myself just to one framework which brings me back to Oddi's um identity thing i think we also need to understand identity in a more fluid way it's not static right we change throughout our lives our identity to some extent goes with it you know it's nothing like we were born with and what just stays with us all our life
2: but, but uh, I still hear a little bit post-modernism here, <laughs> in the sense, um, uh, because you can have fluid identities and still um, try to integrate it, as some psychologists are kind of um, telling us, which is what, in the end, if you have virtues as practices, is happening. Um, so can you maybe reflect a little bit on that? Because I think that would bring us all a step further if we wouldn't have anything goes in the background, kind of.
1: You mean like, well, identity and integration and consistency and and stuff like that?
2: Well, I think you can have various identities, but um, your inner self still wants to integrate it in a certain sense. And it could be that exactly these virtuous, habituate practices are a part of that integration. So I see almost a connection here.
1: Yeah, it could be. I haven't looked at it in that way. But I think like, yeah, there is perhaps some core, right? But on the outside, it's more like moving around. But yeah, what I could witness with myself in China, I mean, if I hadn't had a core, I would have fully adapted, but I didn't, right? There were still some things where I thought like, oh, I don't want to adapt, or I just can't. I, you know, for example, when we look at how they do their social relations, how they manage their social relations, I can see that, I can identify that, but I cannot mimic it. It's impossible for me because I was not socialized in this way. And this is where we come to the limits of, you know, um, adaptation and also like, okay, what's the core of our identity? Where are the things we just cannot overcome, right? Which is not a bad thing, right? So it's yeah and then of course yeah i mean uh, you're right it's like ideally people should strive for integration for like coherence to some extent in their personality because otherwise it's perhaps a bit schizophrenic and a, a bit like erratic you know in terms of character and stuff so i think always like um trying to create a narrative of one's life this is a way how to you know bring in consistency or explaining you know in front of yourself like why you did this and this and justifying this and and then bringing in like coherence in that way yeah through a narrative you tell about your life
0: which almost brings me to kind of this dichotomy of culture versus character and i was uh, one thing that came up for me was that Maybe instead of all this focus on culture, where we try to test culture and use culture almost in a manipulative way within the current system. It's much more about shaping up character, even at an organizational level, to, to reobserve what is happening, what are the practices, what is our narrative at this point in time. And, and again, testing it against what you said at the beginning. Does it add value to, to society? Is it right? But I wanted to, one, one final thing, and then I guess we won't go into the depth of virtues. I mean, Antoinette and I have probably, when we stopped counting, we should, Antoinette, we should, we should count. I think we have 155 virtues or something, uh, 15 different virtue scales that are being suggested in order to measure the application of such virtues. And I think we will probably come back to you at some stage to ask for some help on, on kind of how do we cluster categorize which ones are virtues or not. But that aside, I, I wanted to ask one more layman question. Uh, building on Antoinette, um, so virtue ethics and sorry, this is truly layman versus pragmatism, i.e., William James and then kind of the newer American traditions of philosophy. Kind of, uh, because what you just said, also in the fluidity and the contextualism in the adaptation to identity, is that getting similar to the notion of pragmatism as a philosophy, phil- philosophical philosophical movement, philosophical movement? And then secondly, which again is a theoretical question, and just very quickly, we haven't found any true operationalization of virtue ethics, be that at a societal level or at an organization level. Beyond Solomon, who creates some principles and so on, but or McIntyre, but it's very theoretical and very removed from the practicalities of what Antoinette and I would consider an organizational model or theory. So first question, pragmatism, is there any connection? And second question, Why has nobody tried to operationalize? And is it intrinsically impossible?
1: Yeah, so I think there is um, a link between pragmatism and virtue ethics. So I came across pragmatism through John Dewey and I was wondering why I really like to read his stuff. And then I digged up his biography or stuff about this and it turns out he was in China. And pragmatism, you learn in China. And I think that kind of really influenced um, his. Yeah, I think he was he, he had developed the school of pragmatism in the US. So he was one of the leading figures. And I think what he has seen in, in China has influenced his view. Same as what I have seen in China influenced my degree of pragmatism. And um, virtue ethics is a very pragmatic approach to life. I mean, although I find the Eastern approach even more pragmatic than, you know, Aristotle's mean, but um, yeah, it's the most I think in my opinion is the most pragmatic approach to a good life so yeah pragmatism and virtue ethics for me go hand in hand although of course I mean when you look at it more closely there may be differences but on, on the surface you know virtue ethics is a pragmatic tradition in my opinion and then yeah the second thing yeah operationalization like yeah I mean the interesting thing is or isn't that actually weird that after Solomon no one else dealt with this question um it, it came to be like, it was in fashion once for a very short period and then it dropped again. And now it's coming up, but still no one is dealing with this question. And um, I think this is because we are so much framed in the way that virtues are about the individual. And um, I don't know, I mean, that gives us actually the um, the great opportunity to develop something ourselves. Right. But it still apparently needs to be developed. Um, but one thing that could help us with is that um, when we look at Chinese philosophy, it's actually political philosophy. Chinese philosophy was written for the ruler. So to understand how to guide a people. Right. And so when we when we see a corporation as the people to be guided, you know, in the context of like governance, for example, leadership, then I think we can get a lot from Chinese philosophy. But because like from what I got from Aristotle, I mean, he also wrote about state philosophy, but I don't, I'm not quite sure whether he linked the virtue ethics to, to state philosophy and running the state. But the Chinese uh, philosophers definitely did this.
0: Although Very I, interesting. I and maybe we need, I, in fact, we refer to Plato. Um, sorry, actually, go on. No, but, I, just, uh, I mean, Antoinette, <laughs> at least I think we got confirmation from a, from a, from a kind of qualified uh, source that our project makes sense also in the philosophy domain, which I find very pleasing. But
2: we're going the, to uh, note that and be very happy about that. But um, I was just so triggered by what, what you were saying, because um, when I was reading your stuff and other business essays, which at present tried to go into that direction. Um, it came to me that it's really, really difficult because some view companies as mini-societies, which is a little bit more towards what you were suggesting, whereas when I was reading especially also your things and that special symposium you were um, hosting um, on that topic, it was also um, maybe it's just some kind of a family construct. So can you elaborate a little bit how maybe also in your d- three different traditions, an an organization would be conceptualized because i think there are some conceptualizations
1: out there yeah i mean the interesting thing is so chinese philosophy was political philosophy but the smallest social unit they always looked at at least in confucianism was the family so there was no smaller unit there was no such idea of like you know the individual and then they had like three concentric circles around the family so the behavior within the family was also ideally resembling the behavior within the state, right? So first within the community and then within the state. So family, family, community, state. That was that's the major idea of harmony in Chinese society, right? But it goes back to Confucianism, which is a bit limiting. Um, and then what we what put witness in practice in China was in the 1980s, in during the opening up reform, we had these so-called town village enterprises, which were usually family based. And these were the motor of the Chinese economy, right, for at least 10, 20 years. So they were driving the economic growth in China. And I suppose the same, you know, ideas of role, responsibility and stuff they had in the family was then uh, one to one was then adapted to the the town village enterprises, where you also had, you know, the, the whole family. Like Back then we had larger families. Right um so i think through the town village enterprise organization we could learn perhaps something but on the other hand on a more abstract level we could also get it directly from the philosophy because when we think about a ruler governing the people like we may also get some ideas but um, yeah what's missing is that these are not systematically framed for now and of course in chinese philosophy there is no concept of good business that doesn't exist historically the merchants which were doing who are doing business were the low of four groups in society and so that kind of explains why they never explicitly dealt with oh yeah what's the idea of good business yeah.
0: which probably resonates with Aristotle to a degree but I think we at this point I would call it a break on the first part because otherwise in the last uh, kind of 20-25 minutes we will not get to the other two sections and Antoinette I will ask you for your help in just maybe also for the listeners because we've crossed so many bridges um, to just briefly highlight our key conclusions. And I will try, on the first one, what is good business? I think we came to the conclusion that, on the one hand, it is about developing the individuals and good judgment. On the other hand, however, Alicia said also in terms of measuring the outcomes of the business and what it does in society was was important. Then in terms of virtue ethics and um, some comparisons, I think, again, we dug into the difference between the Aristotelian mean being uh, uh, somewhat rational and also somewhat difficult to implement concept vis-à-vis Confucian, which might be easier because it's a, it's a straight comparison to what were the social rules, so to speak, or rituals um, of the dynasty that he was referring to, vis-à-vis Taoism, much more fluid, much more feeling the connectedness, as Alicia said, adapting within the constraints as opposed to trying to adapt the constraints. It's also some of the key thoughts that I captured. Um, Antoinette, please add, and then Alicia, please add maybe another sentence just so that we have the gist of what we came up with.
2: For me, very important was uh, your first, almost your first statement, um, how to distinguish virtues. Uh, you mentioned two things. It's a habituated practice. So you can learn it. It's practice, which you're doing your whole life and getting better at it. And it always is uh, linked to the common good. Um, I think you did use another word, but I mean, I like this distinction because it's very, very helpful in this jungle out there with everybody coming up with a new new virtue. Um, And the second thing um, which I found quite interesting is this pragmatic stance, which you kind of also reflected back to your own life that you can have something like Taoism more as a baseline as, and that's probably also why it's so attractive. It's a lot about this um, conscious um, movement, but at the same time then adapt to a different environment and still have their um, look for what is virtuous in that environment. And that could be then courage for instance, which is not in other environments.
1: Yeah, I think that, that's where I'll I have a few add-ons. Um, so coming back to the good business, right? Um, and, and getting more on the, the level of the collective or the organization. I think it's very important that the organization as such has enabling structures, right? So when we think about it more strategically, um, it doesn't help when we only have good individuals in an organization because we all know they will not flourish if we don't have um, appropriate structures to enable such flourishing, right? So when you want to have a good organization with good people, you've got to make sure you have the structures in place for that. Um, the second thing is on Chinese philosophy. I think that the major difference I encounter between Western and Chinese philosophy is that Chinese philosophy is so much more intuitive, right? It's not about this high-minded abstract thinking. It's more about, hey, what can I do specifically in my own life to have a good life, whatever that is according to Taoist or Confucian principles, right? So this this intuition, and that's like, that's what you see in China. People are much more driven by intuition. I wouldn't say like, you know, that exclusively makes a good life, right? But if you sometimes also go into like, or go into a more intuitive level, I think that really helps. And then the last thing is like, you know, with, with the Taoism, I can tell you this philosophy gives you a lot of peace. It makes you more peaceful. And I think that's, that's important. I mean, for me, it, it really relieved myself of a lot of burdens, you know, in that sense. So, but yeah, here I understood it's time to, to differentiate again and see what, what I need to apply in what situation.
0: Which, which resonates with me immediately, the Marx quote famously on his tombstone in Highgate Cemetery, right, where he suggested philosophy is not only there to interpret the world, but to change it. And I guess this is what drives me personally, for sure, to sometimes say, yes, uh, kind of letting go of everything and avoiding suffering and reframing and being more mindful sometimes uh, as a a hedonistic endeavor can be useful, especially in, in situations of personal crisis or pain. But I think there has to be that, as you say, that acknowledgement sometimes that we might need to change circumstances, because life might call us into that role for whatever reason at times and and we should see to live up to that I guess but let me go into the second part so beautiful it was already very informative certainly for me um second part and probably 10-15 minutes let's try to be a little bit um crisp I guess um how to make organizations good and it it directly relates to what you just said so I think you said make sure that the environment is there that the practices are there so that organizations actually have a chance or individuals inside those organizations actually have a chance to be good to do good um and i think what we will do on tonight is just fire a few questions because of course we created a heat map on this we looked at various organizational theories and models from teal to agile to holacracy sociocracy and so on so i think we will just explore a little bit in a rapid fire way and then um, maybe go into a few questions that interest us more. So I, I want to fire a first question. Maybe just let's do a, a rapid-fire response as well on implications for corporate governance. And I'm especially thinking about Colin Myers and Prosperity, where Colin is suggesting that yes, we need to take into account organizations that are only such by public fiat. Therefore, they have a, a necessity, in, independent of Friedman and others arguing the opposite, to be anchored, like you suggest, in the society they are part of the society, and the economy and society are intertwined in that regard. And that needs to always be the anchor for acting of any organization. And he's suggesting that, therefore, we should probably change even the principles of um, incorporation, but we should also um, potentially change the accounting and have other types of capital, not only short-term financial capital, but human capital, natural capital, other things that more adequately correspond to the interests of society as a supra um kind of anchor point what's your view on 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 this
1: yeah i mean from the perspective of chinese philosophy i'm really struggling with how to reconcile it with modern western concepts such as corporate governance you know but what just came to my mind is when you mentioned the capital stuff is like is capital actually the right framing for now for for, I mean capital capitalism right that's the same logic and I'm wondering whether we still want to feed the same logic or whether we whatever we call now human capital social capital whatever capital whether perhaps a new framing is actually necessary to get away from this capital notion I don't know I I find it a bit constraining I don't find it 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 it, it, it's too much in the 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 typical economic logic which gives us too much constraints so um, that was my first thought just about this but yeah, for the corporate governance thing, like, yeah, we need to think about embeddedness. We we need to go back to the idea that everything is embedded. And that's very difficult for a Western mindset because we never learned embeddedness. We always learn to isolate, right, to categorize, uh, to classify. And so we need to get, we need to get away from this kind of approach. And think more in embedded terms. I think that would help. But yes, yeah, not directly related to corporate governance. May play out on this level, but it's not directly related.
2: I mean, we will have at some stage um, Freeman talking about care ethics and stakeholders. Maybe we get a little bit closer there. Who knows? I mean, um, but I think your point of embeddedness is a very important one. We were saying firing, so I'm interested in your flourishing practices. But I want to make it a little bit more difficult because you already told us it's empowerment, it's decentralization, I buy all that, but I read that trust is very important, at least in the Confucian uh, logic. So I was really interested, how do you cultivate trust? I was even thinking, are there maybe even some negative nudging so that, that you are not going to be untrustworthy? So what would you say um, on this account if we take trust as an example how can you enable that virtue
1: Well from a confucian perspective of which i'm not the biggest fan right but just uh, speaking from that perspective trust is generated through close relationships and that start with a family and that also puts limitations to trust relationships because you've got this concentric arrangement of you know social relations and once you encounter someone you've never met in your life before at a very point of your life you will have trust issues naturally coming from this you know view on on social relations and that's different i think to western perspectives on on trust right i mean i don't know we don't have this these constraints on perhaps developing trust relationships but i mean i'm not too much into that um, but, well, definitely trust is an important factor in, in flourishing and feeling safe in, like, the psychological safety, right? So this is something that I would see, like, related to this. I
2: don't, I don't really see how that is, for instance, ingrained in rituals. You can also take a, a Daoist perspective here. I'm just kind of interested because um, you were saying that organizations can enable flourishing, and if this is part of it, um, maybe that was also too difficult, but I was just kind of wondering because that really uh, goes back also to this contributing to the common good and solidarity aspect.
0: In well, well, I and I want to build, Antoinette, on what you said because I think you came into um, sanctioning. So, so maybe so. One is trust important, and how is that reflected in a virtuous enterprise? And secondly, has therefore the organization also a role in 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 asking for? Um, solidarity and trust and sanction that if it's not occurring, which seems to be something in China quite prevalent with this whole social scoring mechanisms and and uh, accept it. So is, is there almost, at least from an Eastern standpoint, almost a deontological aspect of this, which also resonates with the church, right? So if you are enlightened, you don't need the Ten Commandments, uh, but if you're not, then you stick to the rules, otherwise you're in trouble. I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, the the, the China thing is a more complicated issue and I come back to that. But um, yeah, I mean, trust is not a notion that is really there in Daoism. So it's very difficult to answer the question from that perspective. And it's of course, it's very prevalent in in Confucian kind of ideas of of social relationships. But then we get to the limitations and these limitations of
2: China kind of um, I think it is in Dao, but maybe not the way you see it, but I think being humble, do not interfere. Um, yeah, little bit servant leadership idea. Now this is the Western terminology. That to me has a lot to do with trusting. and, and They are
1: producing it. trust. Yeah, they can be enabler of trust, but it's not that this philosophy explicitly talks about trust. Yeah, so I would see them as enabler of of trust relationships most definitely. Yeah, um, but yeah, no explicit kind of dealing with this otherwise, right? Um, And uh, coming to China, so, you know, ideally what we can see is like trust is something which should come intrinsically, like, you know, the belief in people and it should not be imposed because otherwise, actually, we need to be wondering, can is trust something that can be imposed at all? And I mean, this is exactly what China is doing now currently with a social credit score. But um, when we look at at the actual picture, it's it's compliance. And I'm wondering whether compliance can lead to trust. I mean, it can you you can get to a, a certain like level of trust but you will not go beyond this just by, by mere compliance right and this is exactly the problem we have in organizations Mer compliance mechanisms will not instill really really significant trust relations Th- this needs to come like intrinsically motivated by certain values people believe in yeah. And, and for example, also like attitudes, um, like um, yeah, being humble, you know, uh, moderation and stuff like that. Yeah. Kindness, kindness is a very important value, I think, in, in cooperation.
0: And I think on this one, uh, Antoinette always, my memory is getting so bad. Is it Sison or Sasson? I always forget, our friend from Spain, well, I mean. Sason. I think he's very explicit about this, right? In his handbook for business ethics, he said, the compliance movements, and the moment that you turn uh, virtues or, or ethics into rule, you actually create a, a, a contraposing mechanism which, which creates disengagement from the very morality. And I think Antoinette has written in, in our recent article about the fact that the moment that you, the opposite, that you incentivize solidarity, you're eroding the very basics for keeping people feeling solidaric. And I think that brings me to, kind of maybe one of the one of the final questions in the section about, so if we think about rituals and practices and what you said earlier and about enabling or potentially also sanctioning um, the right virtuous behaviors or virtuous attitudes, then um, what are the most important and what are the most dangerous ones? And I think we are talking about kind of uh, some some are the, the, the ones that enable flourishing and give life, and the others are life suckers, so to speak, that destroy liveliness in organizations. And maybe uh, i give you one frame and and maybe Antoinette has another. Um, We were trying to get closer to this topic by looking at organizational functions and processes from one lens. And what we see is governance processes or strategy and how you decide short-term and long-term objectives and then cascade them and so on. Practices day to day of managing the firm and uh, kind of integrating different teams and different people into the production and and decision making of day to day um, activities. And finally, the motivation practices or typical performance management incentives, how to get people to do what they should be doing, which, of course, in a traditional way is very one directional. And so the, the, the assumption you already said, the belief is that people are good. I think Antoinette will argue that traditionally the belief was people are trying their very best to avoid um, being good or avoid being contributed to the organization. So governance functions or steering functions vis-a-vis the day-to-day management, decision-making, collaboration in teams vis-a-vis incentivization, motivation. If we take these three categories, if they're helpful, have you got any thoughts about kind of things you've seen or in your seminars with higher and so on? What stuck out for you? in relevant virtues, virtuous practices, or what's the opposite? Unvirtuous, non-virtuous practices that we can learn from. Thwarting virtues,
2: yeah.
1: Thwarting virtues. Yeah, so I think Hire is still a good example for that. I mean, it's the only practical example which is uh, a company which is actually really taking up uh, Daoist values. Um, So when we look at the governance level, um, what we can see with Hire is like um, well, they took a very specific approach in terms of steering their business, and that was like separating it into micro businesses, right? And so giving these micro business uh, enterprises full autonomy and full responsibility, right? Because autonomy and responsibility go together. Um, and um, I I cannot make a judgment, not a final judgment, whether this is a virtuous approach or not, right? People in the organization need to judge upon that question whether they think like it's it's you know. Um, bringing the the organization ahead or or not, whether it's like uh, productive or fruitful. Um, I would just say because I believe in autonomy and responsibility, it looks like a good approach. right? But I cannot give a qualified statement on that Um, in terms of day to day management. I think I know not everyone is made for this, but in general, I think most of us would appreciate letting go of control, letting go of micromanagement of us, you know, within organizations, giving us more space to participate, to contribute things which are closer to our own capacities, capabilities and personality, creating a more inclusive organization that really values um, our personality as such and not just a certain number of skills. Um and I think that has to do with governance but also very much with day-to-day management but you also need to have people um having a feeling for people's talents and their capacities right you need to have people with this kind of mindset with this um horizon to make this judgment and see okay this person needs perhaps some more support there this per- so it's it's a very tricky issue when it comes to large organizations i think and then lastly yeah the incentives like i'm not a fan of incentives right because as you rightly said it may erode the intrinsic motivation so and we all know incentives have their dark sides i think antonet knows much more about this than me and um so the question is how do you how do you enable intrinsic motivation right it's like you gotta create Um, a spirit, right? So I think the emphasis should not be so much on a compliance culture, even though this is a necessary part, of course, of business nowadays, you need to create a spirit in the company. And I'm not quite sure whether this works with companies of any sizes, but perhaps more with the smaller ones. And then the question is, how do you Um, create the spirit and that brings me back to the idea of rituals right I mean ritual sounds a bit archaic right a bit like dated but um, when you understand what Michael Pewitt said in the video about like you know um, just a certain communication practice where people step into each other's role this is also a kind of ritual or you can ritualize it right Um, to for example increase a better understanding of each other's position right so think about like certain practices you repeat with people in the organization so they understand as part of the, the company spirit, and it helps them to develop, you know, so changing perspectives, I think, within a company should be a frequent kind of exercise as, as a form of a ritual, for example.
2: I think I would like to dig into one thing, because I believe that you may be the only person who is able to answer that. Um, I was kind of thinking whether, um, I mean, you left it open, whether people are virtuous um, actors in hire. but assuming they are, at least in China, with all the things you were saying, giving autonomy, giving freedom, giving responsibility. Um, At the same time, they do have very strong incentives, in my opinion. Um, You are having an internal competition as well, which we find in some contexts to be highly difficult. And I even read in Taoism, you shouldn't attach yourself too strongly to material goods. So i was kind of thinking does this work in china because they have embodied that that you shouldn't attach yourself too strongly to material goods and that's why that's not a problem or um and that would have a consequence because then we couldn't copy higher just like that for our western context so i am very interested in that as well how much does that transfer
1: yeah i can elaborate a bit on this so uh, first of all Hi, what, what what we need to understand about the higher case is that higher is very unique in the landscape of Chinese businesses. Right. So um, and uh, in the sense that they the, the the CEO always emphasized values like you know which are modeled after Taoism like being like water right this is the biggest theme in in, in the higher corporate philosophy and being like water means being humble kind support and all that stuff so this this needs to be the general attitude of every employee that is working for hire and it's also interesting that the higher CEO actually stated they want to avoid competition and I think they did so by product differentiation so they never you know, got into this, oh, yeah, we need to have uh, we need to compete on this in this market share. But instead they said, like, oh, yeah, let's create a different product, you know, so and by that getting market share. So this was their strategy. And that's a very Taoist kind of strategy, in my opinion. Yeah. Trying to avoid competition wherever possible because it's just going to drain you. It's wearing you out. Um, I don't know so much about intercompany competition. There may be competition, but I also know about the micro enterprises that these are actually ad hoc creations due to a customer demand. And of course, yeah, then like micro enterprises may deal with competing customer demands, but I'm not quite sure whether this is internally a very competitive in the sense of aggressive um, uh, organization. I, well, I didn't speak to people directly. I can only judge from the surface. I don't have the impression from the surface. Right. Um, But um, yeah, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, yeah, material goods. I mean, when we talk about China today, it's an ultra materialist society. You know, we have post materialism or like, you know, being on the way to post materialism. But China is ultra materialistic. And um, yeah, so of course, like whatever I'm talking about today, you know, Daoist philosophy also like in, in higher executive trainings or stuff we're not talking about China today. Yeah, higher may be a glimpse of hope in that sense, because I try to practice that, but this doesn't speak for the majority of Chinese business or for, for society at large in China. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's about status. It's about materialism.
2: But it actually and, means that you cannot just transfer that, but you have to embody then the whole philosophy behind in order to really make that running. That's what I kind of fear. And, and
0: I think, adding to that, sorry, interjecting, um, what I'm also hearing Antoinette is when we talked about solidarity and Buddha's work, I, 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 in my mind I go back also to Bordzok, for example, and your point on care ethics. Right? I think what we're seeing in some of the companies that are able to evoke that daemon, which is the spirit, right? daemonia is the good spirit, and Alicia you talk funnily enough about the spirit of the enterprise, and I think some of the organizations that evoke that good spirit have very strong norms, I think our, our friends in Bozok tell us that they, are very, they, they trust people a lot because there is an embodied norm that people behave good by each other. And frankly, if they don't, they're out, right? And I think you're being like water. I guess. People who don't fit the culture, or maybe make that a question. People who don't fit the culture, I guess, will find it very difficult to survive in higher than. And I think one axis of exploration for Antoinette and I will be to understand the intra-company competition also provoked by this this level of being one and a half times as much uh, as effective as the as the sector etc in the micro enterprises or, or the systems or ecosystems. I think nurture such uh, competitive behavior, but I think that we leave that aside for now. But what about if people are not sticking to the culture? Make, make, let me make that a question.
1: Yeah, so I mean that the the case with hire is this like it's about self selection, you know, people who don't have an entrepreneurial spirit, they know they won't get a chance to enter the organization and if they cannot grow within the organization they will feel uncomfortable i think and just leave the organization um they may not be even kicked out but they may decide for themselves that this is not an appropriate place and it it puts too much pressure on them right because that's what we could hear about this entrepreneurial spirit that um yeah it's it's adding pressure to people um but then um Yeah, talking shortly about like whether it can be transferred or not. So we have a similar phenomenon with Japanese management and Kaizen and totally quality management and all that stuff and lean, for example. And what people back in the nineties didn't get about Japanese management is you got to import it wholesale. It's not a technique. It's a whole culture you need to import. And the same is true for the higher case. You can only um, kind of emulate higher strategies. If you start emulating the cultural practices outside as an as an environment right and so that's the thing yeah
2: and i think you yeah, but I very think
0: clearly, right the GFG yeah. appliances has not really embraced exactly the same structure neither has the european division of fire right i think but i i i will drive us a little bit into the third section and i think um i have watched the time boundaries very closely because i love the conversation i think we should give it the space but uh, maybe uh, let's conclude within 15 minutes and um Antoinette, can I ask you maybe, and then Alicia to comment, if we crunch up this part. So this, the question was, how do we nurture, or how, how do we craft good organization based on our first round? What are the maybe just three things that came up as a summary for our listeners and for ourselves? that uh, That's me? And then I will ask, Antoinette, I will ask you to introduce the final section, which is about leadership. And Alicia, you already um, spoke a little bit to that.
2: Yeah, I think what resonated very strongly um, with me was that we were able to pinpoint a little bit more the different possible conceptualization of um, businesses. Although that's not at all clear, but there seems to be a possibility to look at firms as families, as communities, and as societies that seems to be there somewhere to tease it out. And you were also saying, have a look at political philosophy in addition. Um, Of course, I found it interesting that trust, while in my opinion, it's even a central concept in Taoism, um, seems not to be seen as something we need to nurture in a certain sense. Of course, you didn't say that, but it's kind of interesting that that doesn't feature up in their explanations, although... Even kindness is one of the most important aspects in in trust. So that's really, really interesting. Um, And I found, of course, the last discussion um, also very interesting, Um, the strong philosophical background, which um, kind of then really tells you, do not attach yourself to materialism. Um, It's about um, humbleness. It's about kindness. Um, That then makes it. Possible that you work with certain methods such as a limited degree of internal competition as you kind of um, Told us without having the negative consequences Um, And that I find very interesting and of course the whole transferability question um, I think it was only Toyota by the way who was able to rebuild kind of the same system in the US and it took them a very long time Um, but they were um, but it's it just make it should make us mindful that we not sh- um, should just blindly transfer so called best practices. But do you do you
1: know why Toyota succeeded in building exactly the same culture? Because in recruitment they selected after like for personality and not just for skills. And this yeah. is a typical Japanese approach to look for to watch out for the personality. And this is what Western companies are often not doing. They just go for the skills.
2: Uh, Yeah, I would disagree here a little bit, but I think every good company who uh, wants to have um, trust and solidarity is doing this. um, And there are a number of companies which are doing this, but I completely agree with you. If you want to have like strong community, there is no way around it. And by the way, it was interesting that you didn't say, what do we do with the people who don't fit, but probably in Dow they just go, which is happening. But um, in, in at least Western companies, we see that if you keep these bad apples, um, it very soon um, destroys the whole company culture. So I've found it's that- There is
0: no asshole rule that Antoinette is very keen <laughs> <cute> about. <laughs> but Okay, uh, Alicia, anything else that you want to crunch up for this section that you want to highlight for anyone listening?
1: Yeah, there's one thing I want to highlight, Um, also in terms of how do we deal with this on a global level where we have different understandings of like values or virtues. I think it's it's extremely important to not just reduce ourselves to specific terms. So, for example, trust. Right. We also need to look at, okay, and what are like the enablers of trust, such as in Taoism, and then we can build a link. Right. But when we just watch out for trust for a single term, we may not find it in every philosophy we have on this globe. Right. And for example, when we when we frame something like as care ethics, right, that the even the notion of care may not be explicit in other philosophies. Right. So we need to be careful in order to create something which is perhaps globally applicable or applicable on a more global level that we don't reduce ourselves on just specific terms and we just, you know, yeah, we are not too excited on this kind of on, on specific terms. I think we always need to have broader notions of terms and, and enablers of these terms. And then we can perhaps create, um uh, I, I don't know, a, a model which is more broadly applicable, not just in the Western context, perhaps.
0: Very interesting. Uh, Resident. I'm, I'm looking forward to also having our friend Richard Clyden to talk about this very subject, language matters, and he was talking about um. Uh, communication games and and uh, some of the Hegelian um, and Wittgenstein theory around this. So, um, and we were looking at Habermas and and dialogic uh, ethics and so on. But that we will certainly not touch on today. Um what also resonated with me was this notion of context. I will speak to Meri- to Michele Zanini again about meritocracy in a short while. And I think kind of, the, the, there is a notion that maybe merit isn't the problem, but the embeddedness in a certain mindset in philosophy, exactly like you just said with the, the Chinese culture. And I think um, we will also speak to, I guess, um, Stefano Zamani at some stage, who I think would argue that markets are not necessarily amoral. It's what you bring into the market. And if you look at Adam Smith, not only in terms of the origin of wealth, but the sentiments of, um, what was it called? I've forgotten sentiments of moral
1: sentiments. Theory of moral sentiments.
0: Theory of moral sentiments. Thank you very much. I'm a I'm a a philosopher apprentice, and therefore you know I take on my joker card. Um, I I think there is a very simplistic view sometimes of what some of these people suggested in reality in regards to how markets could function, and I think meritocracy has been abused to a degree within the current paradigm. And Final thing, Brian Angard was always saying that the, the dominant paradigm has that nasty um, property of englobating, inglobi- oh, incorporating all others. So, if you're not very careful, you're using a word, you're using a term, but you're interpreting it from the dominant paradigm's perspective, which then just makes out of every, um, everything a nail if you've got your hammer, so to speak. And with that, I would suggest let's surf quickly, maybe in five minutes or so, to the leadership topic. And, Antoinette, I will. Hand over to you again. And um, um I think the key question that we will finish on is of course the question of today's seminar, which was, do we need philosopher CEOs? But in that context, let's first hear a little bit more about leaders and then we get there. Antoinette.
2: Exactly. And th- that question is especially reserved to you. Um, (laughs) I'm uh, interested in what you have written already in your PhD thesis, but want to bring that a little bit further. I know that you are a firm believer that it's very important for managers to understand the worldview they're operating in, to look under the iceberg. So you have looked at neoliberal ideology and what the consequences of that are. Maybe just give us three sentences on that. because. I would also like you to, to elaborate what it is, and I'm certainly saying it the wrong way, but what is it if you have a third way China ideology in your mind? What is the consequences then for that?
1: Yeah, the neoliberal question. I mean, that's, yeah, that's really long ago now, but um, yeah, I mean, what, what I got from like working on like more political philosophy and understanding more about neoliberalism is um, that um, it puts competition on like at its focus, right? And um, I think this whole competition paradigm, because it's not just in business, it's affecting us at, as individuals, right? Even in our social lives. So it got so pervasive that the paradigm of competition is now just everywhere. I think that's, that's pretty destructive right and and we got to get away from this um and so i mean the the question is like how how are we going to deal with capitalism on one hand and with neoliberalism as a as a result of that on the other hand right can we have a capitalism without neoliberalism for example can we have a capitalism without the sickening paradigm of constant accumulation which is forcing business to constantly make profit because otherwise they won't survive right so how about the two and um yeah, I haven't been thinking about this now actively, right, over the past years. But these are like the, the two major questions. Can, can we or should we save capitalism and what to do with neoliberal deregulation, globalization, all that, that kind of stuff yeah, that, that came with it um, over the past uh, 30, 40 years? Well,
2: yeah. so you said accumulation and competition, and then give us two um, things which are um, in the mindset or the worldview of managers in China within their political.
1: Really managers in China or from the perspective of Chinese philosophy?
2: Whatever you want to, I, I, agree it, I would go
0: with the philosophy, because I think you already explained that you're not too convinced of current Chinese capitalism, so to speak. So. Well,
2: but the worldview is not coming from the philosophy necessarily, but it's a political ideology. That's what I kind of wanted to tease out a little bit. If you are allowed to talk about that. <laughs> oh, yes,
1: of course. Now I'm allowed to talk about it. I can just talk about anything. But um, okay. yeah, I mean, in, in in China, I think no one can imagine how it's like in China. It's here it's already competitive in china it's ultra competitive and people are psychologically suffering from this high level of competition everywhere and it starts in school right even at school you're not free from that it's extreme competition in school already and so yeah i mean in that regard i find china even worse off than than our societies because i can see it with my students there when i still teach they are they, are, they must be suffering like it's, it's not like China for now is I think it's very difficult to have a happy life in, in light of all this materialism status claiming and yeah so um yeah so much about like
2: the third way any longer when it comes to world views
0: so yeah well as I had to say I mean Antoinette quoting your statistics right I think you suggested 74% of the people in the UK feel burnout from work 80% of Germans feel stressed out at work. Yeah, and we had the quote with uh, Jeff Pfeffer suggesting that burnout is the fifth leading condition of death, in, so burnout from work, in the United States. Yeah. So again, I'm not sure whether situations can get much worse in some of the Western societies as well. So I think we, we're probably aligning ourselves to greater than needed suffering everywhere. But I, I want to ask my question then in the concluding with the combining it with the final question so if you take the chinese or eastern philosophy the aristotelian on neo-aristotelian or the business ethics philosophy kind of what are the one two three things that you really feel strongly right if you had the ceo of um, amazon right not even talking about rockets and so on but you've got jeff bezos here with you now and you got the unique chance to tell him get your act together with these one, two, three things. What would you say they should learn from the philosophers that you know? And then the follow-up question, of course, is the grand question of today's series, which is, do we need more philosopher CEOs or not?
1: Yeah, I think like I personally would not be able to help Jeff Bezos, but just like, uh, as an, like, you know, as a, just a creative kind of exercise, I perhaps, would think about like, okay, treat your employees in the in the right way and stop, stop exploiting them, right? Make them feel they are part of the company and not just, you know, ripping them off, like in terms of, I don't know, a salary they can't live from. Um, and then the second thing is stop short-term thinking and stop this ego. I mean, when you look at Amazon, it's pure ego. I mean, why does this guy wants to have like, you know, wants to be on a rocket, like going to the moon? That's pure ego. He could have invested this amount of money, this vast amount of money in in totally different ways, you know? So perhaps my advice to Jeff Bezos, is stop short-term thinking, uh, try to take care finally about like your employees. And the third thing is don't waste money on things which are I don't know, which don't have an impact here on society. You've got to take care of society. I mean, man, you're so much saving from taxes, you know, tax exemptions. You can, you could potentially invest it somewhere in the communities, really
2: like, but, but then-
0: Before you go to, moon, go to the moon. But then, sorry, you're gonna mute the Alicia. So the, the final question and yes or no answer, um, more philosopher CEOs?
1: I wouldn't recommend philosophers for the position of CEOs, to be honest. Um, because they they lack the, the worthiness, you sure, know.
0: We not <laughs>
1: <laughs> what we need are CEOs who can think in philosophical ways, you know, and what I mean with this is they are good at critical thinking, they are good at changing perspectives, and they got perhaps some humanities education. So this is all what we could wish for, but please put don't put a philosopher at the position of a CEO. I don't think it's going to work.
0: And with that, you've lost so many friends, Alicia, from this uh, single one and a half hour interview. But uh, wonderful. Thank you for those answers. And we will check out with a rather um facetious fun 60 seconds interview which will be the last thing on this call so i will just fire questions on you and i would ask you for a yes no neither and a one sentence explanatory answer on each of those and i will add one that wasn't on my schedule before just based on what you just said which is would you so so the, the question is um Antoinette, help me what is it um or general income basic income what basic. is it called basic income Basic income for everybody? Yes, no, neither?
1: Yeah, universal basic income? Yes. Rather yes. Rather
0: yes. Mm -hmm. Rather yes. Okay. Um, To learn more about the good life, I would rather have dinner with Martin Luther King, if he was still there, read the Tao Te Ching once more, or spend a year in a cloister.
1: I read the Tao Te Ching so often, and a cloister, mm, I think I would choose Martin Luther King.
0: That sounds very hedonistic in my mind. Good societies need which of the following? Good leaders, good rules, good virtues. Good leaders. Good leaders. I was hoping for the virtues answer. Very good. <laughs> Harris Harris or Confucius? Neither. You want to qualify that and lose a few more friends? Yeah, that's just,
1: I'm into Taoist philosophy, so that's not covered, unfortunately.
0: Taoist, <laughs> okay. Uh, capitalism or socialism? neither any other answer sorry i have not framed my world vision yet so there needs to be something else germany or china germany Mm. and if i could change the world doing one thing to make it a better place it would be what
1: yeah, too bad. I had actually had a note on that to be more prepared. I think if I could change something, you yeah, know, it just came back. If I could change something, I would give people as much as, as as much opportunity as possible to develop a hybrid mindset, because this is how we can integrate differences we see across the world, when we can develop a better understanding of how, how the world is in, in different places, you know. So, yeah.
0: Wonderful. And with that, we're concluding the very first edition of our Leaders for Humanity series. It's been a wonderful pleasure, Alicia, to have you here. And Antoinette, it's always a wonderful pleasure to be with you. I hope people listening to us have enjoyed this uh, rather wide ranging um, exploration of uh, philosophy all over the world. Um, If you haven't listened to anything else, so the two pieces of advice that Alicia gives you to have a better life one, be more prepared, that's what I heard. And secondly, indeed, try to get more um, worldviews, views, more hybrid, hybridness in your thinking in order to understand first um, what is actually going on with yourself and with the others. And I think that's a wonderful recommendation to, to close on. And with that, I would say, um, thank you very much for watching us. If you have any suggestions and thoughts, please come back to us and look at the website and um, speak to you again soon.